Well, good evening, church. Choir, that was beautiful. Thank you, Brother Andrew. Thank you for setting the table, man. It is uh, it's a privilege to labor with you. Dr. Kelly, it is an honor to be back in this sacred helm. And um, I don't take lightly getting to preach uh, in this particular pulpit. I pastored, um, we helped restart a church that was ailing back a few years ago. And uh, that church to this day, the spiritual high water mark that they still reference is uh, your pastor's ministry there in revival. They've never surpassed what God did through your pastor there. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many years ago that was, Dr. Is several years ago. And uh, we, we would have a touch of God. And, um, and, but it, it would always be, it isn't quite what happened when Brother Kelly was here. <laughs> they still, to this day, speak of that great move of God that your pastor uh, led there in the uh, Clemson, South Carolina area. Well, it is, a, it is a great honor to be here. I want you to take your copy of God's Word. Go to the book of Exodus. Go to the book of Exodus. That is the second book in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Word of God, Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going. And we want to look at Exodus 1. We're going to begin our reading in just a moment at verse 7. Uh, we're going to set the tenor in the tone from the text. And what we're going to do this evening is we're, we're going to extract, expose, exposit um, some basic principles to help us that um, will equip us in these last days. One of the marvelous truths of the Word of God is that it is consistently relevant. You don't have to make it relevant. It is transcending. It is absolutely relevant for, for whatever circumstance or situation you're facing. It has always got a word from the Word. So Exodus chapter 1, would you out of reverence rise, if you can, at verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. And uh, let's see what the Lord has to say to us this evening. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold. The people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Let us, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there fail, uh, faileth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did not set over them, uh, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, they built for Pharaoh treasure cities. Uh, if you would, drop down to verse um, 15 for the sake of time. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one which was Sithera, and the name of the other Pura. And he said, When ye do the office of midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. And if we go to the house right now, we've already had more than most will get all week. For the truth of the songs of Zion, for the rhythm of redemption that has filled our hearts, for your spirit that is now moving and liberating and ministering, we thank you for all of that. And now we pray, God, not in arrogance, but in authority, that if there be any spirit in this room that's not of the Holy Spirit, we pray, O oh God, that you would remove it, 
that we may set our attention and our affection upon you and not a man. Hide me, I pray, O God, behind the cross that I may decrease and you may increase. In Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. When you get to this particular historical epic, one of the great challenges uh, in this particular passage is that sometimes those of us that have been students of the Word of God for any length of time, the familiarity of the passage will breed a complacency because we have been exposed to it so often in our devotional time because we have quite frequently visited the passage in our private praise and prayer time. We tend to, because of the exposure, we it lessens some of the expectancy for what's about to happen. Uh, when you come to the Word of God, you know, beloved, it's it's like a diamond. You hold it up to the light and you never get the same view that you did last time. This book is unlike any other book that has ever been given in the hearing of humanity. If, uh, for example, we were to jump in pastor's car and we were to drive down to the local bookstore and pick up the bestseller. If we were to get O'Reilly's latest and greatest. If we were to pick up the greatest fictional. I got a witness in the house on that one. If we were to pick up whatever it is that's top selling, uh, as good as that book might be, here's the profound difference. Not the exhaustive, but one of the most profound differences. If we picked up O'Reilly's latest and we took it to pastor's house and we were to sit down and begin to read it, as good as it might be, here's the setting apart difference. This book right here, O'Reilly will not be with us at pastor's house. But when you open this book, the author is right there with you. Unlike any other book, he sets down and illuminates and he begins to illustrate and he causes the word to pop up off the page and to begin to work in us like never before. And you can read a passage a hundred times and come to it fresh and new every day and the Spirit of God will lift it up off the page, put it through the illuminating power of his spirit and you'll see something you've never seen before. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate this ever so quickly. I was preaching not too many months ago in uh, the great city of Meridian, Mississippi uh, in a Bible conference much like this and uh, the pastor related to me a story of a man that was living in the community and it really, it really grasped what I'm trying to get at right here in this particular point. There was a man by the name of George Phillips. George Phillips was something of a character in the city. He was a well-known, very very Christian, gentle man. And he had worked some 40-something years at a local factory there in Meridian, Mississippi. And he'd worked hard like most of us have. And finally, retirement came. And he celebrated that day, got his watch, and went back to the house. And he had always wanted a woodworking shop. Well, he'd saved his money and he bought every woodworking tool you can imagine. And he was carving and varnishing and painting and building. And one evening on into retirement, his wife said to him, George, uh, you forgot to lock up the woodworking shop. George said, sweetheart, I locked that shop up an hour ago. She said, well, honey, the lights are on and the doors are open. He stepped to the window uh, by the sink and he looked out and I want you to know <laughs> that there was a pickup backed up and there were some Mississippi rednecks loading it up with all of George's tools. George said, I can't believe it. They were putting all of his bandsaws and his lawnmower and his weed eater and all of his woodworking equipment, loading it up in that truck. And he picked up the phone, called 911, and the dispatcher said, what is your emergency? George Phillips said, ma'am, there is... Uh, two or three rednecks in a pickup, backed up, loading it up with all of my stuff, and they're about to pull off. She said, sir, uh, 
I don't know how to tell you this, but we're very busy. She said, uh, are they harming you? Are they trying to get in the house? George Phillips said, according to the Meridian Times, no, ma'am, they're not trying to come into the house. I'm telling you, they got a pickup, backed up, loading it up. They're taking all my stuff. She said, Mr. Phillips, you need to calm down. Said, we don't have an officer in the area. And it could be somewhere around 30 minutes before they could get there. George hung the phone back up and he counted to 60, according to the Meridian Times report. He picked the phone back up, called 911, and he, the dispatcher said, uh, Mr. Phillips, is this you again? He said, yes, ma'am. You know I told you there was a pickup backed up loading up all my stuff. She said, yes, sir, and I told you we couldn't be there for 30 minutes. He said, don't worry about it. Said, I went in there and got my shotgun. He said, I, they're spread out all over the backyard. Said, I blew every one of them away, and he hung the phone up. Well, I want you to know in less than, according to official time, the Meridian Times, in less than three minutes, six police cruisers had pulled up in his front yard, weapons drawn. In less than, than 10 minutes, the SWAT team arrived. And in about 15 minutes, the police chief in the middle of the night in his, in his bedrobe and his house shoes was walking down George Phillips' driveway. And the uh, officer in charge on the scene said, Chief, we're sorry we woke you up. But we want you to know there was no shooting. Knowing George Phillips, the chief wheeled around in his house coat and, and house slippers and said, George, you said you blew them boys all over the backyard. George said, yes, sir, I did. But you also said wasn't anybody available for 30 minutes. <laughs> Y'all get that later. Sometimes a passage has to be picked up and looked at. And you just don't quite get the ending. You, it, it'll sneak up on you on purpose if you're taking notes. Uh, I, I want you to, first and foremost, I want to talk to you for just a moment about the political climate of the day. The political climate of the day. Now, before we go any further, I, I, I want to ease any, any anxieties in the room. I, I, I want to quell any concerns. I want you to know I would not in any way defile this sacred desk nor dishonor the pastor whom I'm under tonight with Dr. Kelly. I, I'm not going to bring politics up. We know what politics, we understand the etymology of the word, poly meaning many, ticks meaning bloodsuckers. We wouldn't bring that up. We're just going to leave that alone. Amen? We're not going to mess with it. Hey, can I get a witness in the house? But we do have to be honest about the political climate of the day. I want you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word. Would you, if you will, would you, would you come back to verse 7 and, and let's just let the Word get in, in our heart one more time. Listen to verse 7. Let's set the tenor and the tone. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and they waxed exceeding mighty. Verse 10, come, this is Pharaoh. Come on, let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply and it come to pass when there falleth out any war. They may also join our enemies and fight against us. And so we need to get them up out of the land. Now, here's his motivation. The text is very clear in that it says there arose, verse 10, a, a new king that knew not Joseph. Uh, my life, um, I got called. I'm just going to be quite honest. And I know that, that you're in this room because you caught me in the front yard of your beautiful church here. <laughs> I was taking a selfie <laughs> by your marquee out there. And I, I saw some folk pressing through the window, looking and laughing at me. And it's in my moment of vanity, Dr. Kelly. I, I'm going to admit that. I, it, it had right there on the marquee, 
preaching tonight, you know, Dr. Jeff LeMorgan. I, I'm, I still marvel that anybody would let me preach, period. I mean, it's a marvel. And my wife thinks it's even more of a marvel. So I'm a high school dropout. I dropped out of high school. Uh, my father threw me out of the house when I was 16. He was an alcoholic. I was addicted to uh, alcohol and to drugs already at that point in my life. And when I got saved later in life, functionally illiterate, I, I couldn't even, I really couldn't read the Bible that I got saved under. I was in my mid-twenties before I got hooked on phonics. So it's been a long journey. When when I pull up, it takes some of y'all an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes. I'm just going to tell you. Y'all a little slow tonight. You're a little slow. So as I study the Word of God, I, I, I have to study it differently because I, I have, I have. It's been a long journey for me, and and I'm still in school. I'm I'm, I'm working on on my doc, my second doctorate, and and it's been a, it's 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 an ongoing discipline for me. So I have to study in a different way because I I, I learned in my 30s that. Uh, I, I have, and this is going to shock some of you, but I was diagnosed in my 30s with ADD, DDHD, and times three. And I was preaching a Bible conference uh, down in Florida one year, and a physician walked up, and I was in my mid to late 30s, and he said, he said, I'd given my testimony that night, and he said, have, have you ever heard of dyslexia? And I said, sir, I, I don't think I smoked any of that before I got saved. I, I'm... And it sounds expensive, so I know I didn't drink any of it. And he said, no, Laborg, that's not... I'm, he said, it's a, it's a learning disorder. He said, it's where the words move. They, the letters move on you. They swap around. You see them backwards sometimes. And I said, yes. I thought that was something I smoked before I got saved. He said, no, it's, it's, a, it's something you, you have to learn how to learn through. So part of my learning process is... I have learned to study the scriptures in a discipline and also in a Hebraic, meaning that I study it from a Hebraic side. I spent about a month last year in the Middle East studying eschatology and prophecy and in the Temple Institute and hanging out with some of the great Hebrew minds. I'm going to just hit the pause button. This doesn't count on my preaching time. Amen. Now, I know we got to go because I checked. Matlock's coming on. I've got to get back to the room. I, I, I was over there about a month and and... Most of the Hebrews there are not messianic. They, 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 they do not believe Yeshua Messiah has come yet. But there is an absolute excitement. There is an expectation in the air that is unlike... Uh, that was my seventh time over there. And I'm telling you, the atmosphere is pregnant with anticipation that Yeshua Messiah is at the door. Uh, in my studying over there for my PhD in eschatology, I, I was, I was, uh, engaging them at the Temple Institute, engaging them in some of the learning centers. It is, it is amazing. They are experiencing what is called Aliyal. It's the call to come home and all over the world. It's prophesied in Jeremiah. It's prophesied in Deuteronomy. It's prophesied in Isaiah that in these last days, they would begin to experience a draw to come home. Aliyal. It's the call to come home. Uh, I was there a couple of years ago studying prophecy with my wife and we took our children, the dream trip for us, and we were walking down the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem and my wife said, I'd love some ice cream. And there's a little vendor open air market and I walked up to this Hasidic Orthodox Jew, black cap and curls and his talit hanging out and he's in, draped in all black. He's very, very Orthodox. And I said to him, sir, I'd like to buy my wife some ice cream. And he said, what flavor you want? I said, you speak the mother language. He said, uh, what, what flavor you want? I said, you're not from here, from Kentucky. 
Kentucky, grown up in Kentucky, was about to inherit a multi-million dollar business from his Jewish family and woke up in the middle of the night and the Spirit of God said, go home, Ali all Messiah. Now listen to me. What they don't know is he's not coming for the first time. <laughs> he's coming for the second time. This is the atmosphere of this place. They're, they are, in fact, just about six months ago, for the first time in the history of Israel, uh, post-Hitler, there are more Jews living in Israel today than Hitler tried to annihilate in the ovens of World War II. It is a land that is absolutely exciting. And in my studies, I tell you all that to say, in my studying, I have learned that we, we've done a great disservice to Americans who are Christians. Caesar came along and in about 327, 328, he at the Bridge of Milan, brings Christianity into the government, and he says, no more studying from the Jewish perspective. You've got to study it in a benign way. You've got to study it a Roman way, an American way. You go to your devotional time, and you rip it out of context, and I'm telling you, beloved, this is a Hebrew book, and if you're going to understand it, it is a Hebrew that taught it. It was Yahshua Messiah, Rabboni, that teaches the New Testament, and it lifts up off the pages. So I say all that to say to you that the political climate of this day, let me, let me give you an example. This particular Pharaoh who arose that knew not Joseph, I was not aware until last year in studying with some of the Temple Institute Hebrews that they are very aware of who this Pharaoh is. And in fact, most conservative theologians would tell you, according to Isaiah 52 and verse 4, that this is an Assyrian who's going to be named Ramses II. He's not an Egyptian. He has subjugated the Egyptian people. He has come in with military might and power. Joseph uh, has been dead somewhere around 65 to 70 years at the advent of Exodus chapter 1 and verse 10 and following. So this this Assyrian who has come in and knew not the Jews... now. Now, now, this is his motivation. His motivation is that he, he wants to use political correctness to get rid of a threat. That's his motivation. He sees something unique about these people that he can't quite put his finger on. They're a bit of an oddity. <laughs> Let's try it on the Bible way. Do you know you are a, we are a peculiar people? Don't point, ma'am. Just look up here. We're... We're, we're a peculiar people. We're, we're, we're pilgrims passing through. This world's not our home. There's something different about us. And we don't have to be aggressive even in our evangelism. We don't have to be odd as believers. We don't have to be confrontational in our convictions. We can just walk in a room and because of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, as Brother Andrew said, the fullness of Him that lives inside of me. I walk into the darkness where there are spirits that are oppressing and depressing. And you walk into an environment where Satan has the authority in the room. And as a child of God, you walk in and an unbeliever says, there's something different about that guy. He makes me uncomfortable. Oh, it's not me. It's the Jesus in me. <laughs> it isn't that, that, that I have something to offer you. It's, it is that I have been made salt and the thirst that you are experiencing is I've been to the well that won't run dry. The light that you are seeing is not because of me, but he that lives inside of me. And I'm, I, I'm just a torchbearer. And when I pierce the darkness, the oddity is I, Pharaoh Ramsey II, Isaiah 52, 4, he doesn't quite know what to do with these Hebrews. 
just 65 years ago, Joseph was, if I might say it, a savior to the land. Now, I'm going to make a highly controversial statement, which is very, very, very out of my nature, because I'm very Joel Osteen this most of the time. (laughs) Okay, that's a lie. So, is it not amazing to you how quickly we have forgotten from whence we came? I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm not trying to make... Uh, any kind of a partisan point. I'm just saying to you, is it not amazing to you how quickly, I mean just a generation ago, just a generation ago, uh, my, when, and when I grew up in the foothills of Tennessee, my mama put us out of the house and, and we, we stayed out of the house all day long. We didn't come in the house. If you wanted something to drink, you went to the hose pipe. I know that's not proper language, but you went to the hose pipe. And if you were the youngest, you had to drink the hot water so the big boys could get the cold water. Or we went down because we lived in the foothills on the back side of the woods and I grew up in a farming community. You went down to the creek and you got a drink. You didn't come in the house until nighttime. If you wanted something to eat, your mama put it out on the patio. And when the sun began to set, she'd stick her head out the window. She didn't worry about some pedophile or pervert picking you up. If you did something wrong on the other side of the neighborhood, they'd whip you. Then they'd call your mama and she'd whip you. And then when daddy got home, he'd whip you. Now I know that's not popular today. I know that we've got this new touchy-feely political correctness of time out. <laughs> I didn't grow up with timeout, Pastor. I grew up with knockout. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? Radically different. Radically different. How in the world did we get to this place so quickly? How is it that this Pharaoh has no idea who he's dealing with? His motivation is is to further his kingdom. It's to advance the wickedness of his own heart. And what he's saying here is, it's it's a hypothetical non-issue. The point is, these are vagabonds. These are subjugated slaves. There is not going to be an issue of war. If he's all that in a bag of chips to begin with, then why is he worried about a bunch of emaciated, beat-down slaves being able to overtake his kingdom? The motivation is much, much deeper here. Now watch his frustration. His frustration moves from, all right, here's the political argument. We need to do something with them because it's a national defense issue. Well, when the midwife said, you know, those Hebrew women are some kind of tough broads. (laughs) They spit them out and they're back in the slave pits. It's amazing. Y'all all right? I said that in Tennessee language. Let me back up. They birthed him and went back to work. <laughs> what he does is, is he, his motivation is purely, purely political. And his frustration is he doesn't know what to do with them uh, because he, he, he can't do anything with them. So he moves from the political correctness and now he's going to try spiritual darkness. Now, I'm going to tell you why I'm taking precious preaching time to say this to you, because I want you to understand something. Anytime you see an attack in the Word of God or in the world you live in on the unborn or the newly born, you can rest assured, beloved, it is a demonic attack every time. It doesn't have anything to do with politics. It has to do with a demonic spirit that wants to destroy the most innocent in our society. 
So the political argument of Pharaoh, the culture of that day is, look for national security. I'll tell you what we got to do. We've got to get rid of these dudes. Let's kill them. Let's kill them as they're born. Well, he doesn't even have the good sense to know because he's blinded by the God of this world that who's motivating him is the prince of the power of the air because Lucifer, who is now Satan, knows very good and well. He is a deeply committed student of the word of God. And he knows that through the promised seed... Through the promised seed, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, through the seed of the woman. Women don't have seeds. I'm not trying to be crude. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be careful. But hear me, beloved. Women don't have seeds. Nowhere else in the Word of God is it ever mentioned. At no other time. Because there is not a possibility for a woman to have a seed. The man has the seed. He's the progenerator. She carries the egg to be fertilized. Satan immediately knew something is going to happen. There is one coming who out of her seed is going to, he's going to come and I'm going to bruise his heel and his heel's going to crush the seed of the head of my seed. He knew that through the womb, through the bloodline in order to stop in order to keep the promise of Yeshua Messiah from coming, he's got to interrupt it. So he's just going to use a puppet Pharaoh. He's just going to use a politically correct national security argument that says it is expedient for us to accept the slaughter of the unborn. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anybody in this room? I pause here very quickly to say this to you as we hasten to a close. Listen to me. Don't you think for a moment because you made it out of your mother's womb safely that you are not in the crosshairs of this same spirit of Pharaoh. Because the listen to me, the day we decided to kill the unproductive and the unborn is the day we started putting crosshairs on the elderly and the aged because we are now operating at an unprecedented amount of, of, of national debt. We are $19 trillion in operational debt. We are somewhere north of, nine, of $225 trillion in unfunded liabilities, which means this. We are quickly coming to a place where this generation who now accepts the wholesale slaughter of unborn children that we are killing to the excess of 650,000 a year in this nation, that God will judge someday, that blood will not go unanswered for. You listen to me, we have now raised a generation that will kill you over the type of shoes you wear, that will kill you over the kind of pants you wear, that will kill you for a dollar, and I promise you we have now raised a generation that when the doctor walks in and says, listen, there she is, I, I mean she's She's, she's mentally viable, but she's physically unproductive. And she's going to have to take what your dad and her work for all of their life, and we're going to have to put her in a home and put a peg tube. Now, you'll have good fellowship, and she'll have a good mind, but she's going to have to live in a facility. However, if you were to just refuse to give her a little nourishment, just let her drift away. Well, that... Retirement nest egg, you know, you and the kids could go to Disney World. Listen to me, beloved, don't you think for a moment that this generation wouldn't think twice about it. I have, it has broken my heart to pastor people who call themselves believers who will warehouse their grandparents and their parents and walk off from them and won't even go see them anymore because they're mad that they're spending their money to extend their life because they don't believe they're productive anymore. Listen to me. He has life and death in his hand. And ma'am, I want to say something to you. You may not be mobile forever. Sir, you may not be able to work around the church house. You may not always be able to go with Pastor Kelly and win souls and visit the saints. But you hear me. When you 
are at home and you can't move anymore and the government says you're too expensive to keep up, I want you to know something. You are a child of the Most High God and you can still get a hold of the horns of the altar. You can still speak the name that's above every other name. You can still pray a prayer covering over your pastor. You can still beg God for revival for this nation. And I submit to some of you senior saints of God, your greatest days are ahead. Maybe you're not going to be as visible and as mobile, but I promise you in the name of Jesus, there's nothing more powerful than prayer. And God may set you down mobily in order to mobilize you supernaturally. Don't you let the government tell you you're not worth anything to the King of Kings. So, that's the political climate of the day. His motivation is is prefaced, is couched in this military national argument. Now, what he cannot accomplish in political correctness, <laughs> he's going to try in spiritual darkness. But don't ever underestimate the devil. I'm telling you, he's a dude now. He's wily. He says, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this and the political correctness aspect of them being born and the midwives just letting them bleed to death, I, that didn't work. So I'm going to appeal, that the political side didn't work. I'm going to appeal to the spiritual side. So let's do this. When they're born, all the male babies, let's take them down to the River Nile and let's throw them in. Now that sounds rather cruel unless you know your background. Now what he's doing is really savvy. I'm telling you, he, he, this dude is demonically charged. This is what he does. He says to the nation of Egypt, the people that he subjugated, who he's overcome, he says, now you worship the god of fertility, the river Hepti. Hepti was the god that overflowed the banks of the Nile. And when the waters from the north when the swelling from the north came down that Nile Valley and swelled out of that river, every time the waters touched the soil that was sandy, dry, and desert, when the God Hepti, the God of fertility, when he brought his life-giving waters to the, to the Nile Valley, everything blossomed. I'm talking about, I'm talking about corn on the cob with seven pounds of butter. Can I get a witness in the house? I'm talking about amber waves of grain that when you pound them up, you made a cat head biscuit the size of a small child's head and put a slab of ham in there that was so salty you drank 11 gallons of water before the next morning. Can I get a witness in the house? That's Tennessee time. Hello, somebody. So the, the thought was, the thought was, listen, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> I got it. We're going to take these people that I can't put my thumb on. I can't figure them out. They just, they just make me uncomfortable. And what we're going to do is I'm going to appeal to these people that I'm now Lord and Master over. You get their babies and throw them in the river because when you throw life into the river Nile, the Hepti God, the God of Heptine fertility, will applaud you and will have bumper crops. Uh, Brother Jeff, you know, I love Jesus, but... My 401k is a separate issue than my love for Jesus. <laughs> Can I say to you with all due respect, sir, you're a goober. <laughs> Amen? I, listen to me. God can take a 401k and turn it into a 101k and it won't be okay because he's the giver of every good gift. You hear me? And that's what's going on in this nation right now. We're about to find out who's made of what and who believes what. Throw... The babies, 
and let's appease, and boy, the Egyptians, they applauded. Oh, now, now fast forward because I'm out of preaching time. Now watch this, watch this. That's the political climate of the day. I want you to look at the spiritual commitment of the day. If you go to chapter 2, go to chapter 2 very quickly, very quickly, and I want you to notice something on the spiritual commitment. Look, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Let's just set the, the context for the text. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and he took a wife of the daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived to bear a son, and when she saw that he was a goodly child, <laughs> a goodly child, that means he's a good-looking kid. Now, I know all of y'all think that all children are beautiful when they're born. <laughs> But you need to go with Brother Kelly and I sometime. <laughs> I've seen some. I thought, y'all got that out of there too early, buddy. <laughs> Woo, you going to put that back in there? <laughs> now, Brother Andrew, y'all going to have a beautiful child. I'm telling you. <laughs> You're going to have a beautiful child. But I'm telling you. You're going to be out in the field with Brother Kelly one day. and You're going to get in the truck. And you're, going to, you're, going to, you're not going to know what to say. Because you thought you were going to see a newborn and you could have swore a monkey escaped from the zoo. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm just telling you it happens. It's like all brides are beautiful. I've never seen an ugly bride. I saw a close call twice. But I'm telling you, it's a goodly child. Y'all all right? My wife said, you better behave because Dr. Kelly lets you come back. So watch this, watch this, watch this. She had a goodly child. And she hid him. Three months. Now, I don't, I don't have time. Let's just get this real quick. Here's what you got going on. You, you, Moses' daddy is Daddy Amram. His mother's name is Jochebed. Now, they've already got two kids. Now, you know this. This is just reinforcing and reviewing what you already know. They've already got two kids. They've got about a three-year-old son, and his name's Aaron. They've got about a six- to seven-year-old daughter. Her name is Miriam. And Mama Jochebed has a baby boy right in the middle of this political correctness that says, toss that little one, if he's a male, toss him in the river to appease the spiritual darkness in order to achieve the political correctness. He, she knows, for I, we don't understand it, and God works in mysterious ways, but she knows out of conviction, Daddy Amram and Mama Jochebed know there's something about this boy that's different. And she hid him for three months. I don't know how she did that. I don't... Brother Andrew, you're about to find out. You understand? You can't hide him. I don't know how she did it. If she were living in today's world, you know, I'd say she put him in pink or something. And he wouldn't even know what bathroom to use. I'd say that. But that's not what's going... Y'all don't have that problem up here? Well, we got that problem in Tennessee. How many of y'all know sin will make you stupid? Do y'all know that? You get to a place you don't even know what bathroom to use. You, Anyway, somewhere in the midst of this, Daddy Amram, Mama Jochebed have decided they're going to obey God. Now, here's the spiritual commitment of the day. They know if they get caught, this is probably a capital crime against, this is high treason against the, the seat of Pharaoh. But they're going to believe God. Now, fast forward, fast forward so we can get to the end of this. And watch this. The political climate of the day, we've already seen what that is. Here's the spiritual commitment of the hour. They decide that what they're going to do is they're going to wait on God. So at some point, I believe Daddy Amram was leading family devotion time. And I believe the Holy Ghost of God just sat down in that little slave hut and said, I got a plan for this boy and because you 
have honored me. I'm going to do something through your son that only God could do. And I believe God started unfolding that. And I'm going to prove my point here in just a moment. I, the text says that mom weaved together a basket of reeds. Now, now I, I don't, if you take your picture, if you, I have to think in pictures. I have to learn in, 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 because of my, some challenges, I have to see it. I have to walk. I have to smell it. I have to touch it. I have to do what J. Vernon McGee said. I have to get on the Bible bus and press my face against the window and I gotta watch it. I gotta watch it. I gotta watch it. And then I gotta get a hold of it. I can't study it like Dr. Kelly. You know, he can get it in an hour. It takes me ten to get what he can do in an hour. I, so I gotta walk through the text and I gotta watch mom weave this basket together. So I get to this place and I'm in the Middle East. I'm studying and we're talking about this text and the fact that this Isaiah 52 says this is Ramsey Menopoth is who literally is coming in and I'm, I'm unpacking the text and I asked the guy that I'm studying with who's a, a Hebrew scholar but he's not a believer and he says, I said, I'm going to ask you something that's always bothered me. Why did Mama Jochebed weave that basket together and it says she put tar on it and then she pitched it with pitch. That's redundant to me. I don't understand. If I know what tar is. That that's to seal it. I understand. That's to waterproof it. Why did she pitch it with pitch? And what does that even mean? Because the issue here is this is not this is not a Disney placid river. This isn't some Walt Disney picture. This is a crocodile infested Nile. Do you understand what I'm saying? This 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 is not a nice little stroll or float on the on on a lake. This is a life eating. At probably because of the historical context, probably swollen a little bit up out of its lakes because that's when its fertility is the most superstitiously supposed to be taking place. Mom puts this basket together, puts Moses in the basket. She seals it with tar. That's to keep the water out. Watch this. So my Hebrew buddy says, you Americans study the word of God. You bring all your American ideas and you impose it on the text. You just come straight to it and you devotionally make the text mean what you think it means instead of letting it mean what it means. I said, okay, help me. What does pitch mean? Why did she seal it, waterproof it, and then pitch it? He said, it's, it's simple. In fact, he said, All, our Hebrew boys, equivalent to your Sunday school classes, would know that. He said, this is the deal. These are Hebrews who are poverty stricken. They are, they are slaves and the only place they've got to wash is in a crocodile infested Nile. So when they go down, they have learned over these 400 plus years, there's a plant that grows called the pitch plant. And if they take the pitch plant and they rub it on their skin before they wash in the Nile, it's a natural repellent to the crocodile. Now, if I was at home right now, we'd have a spell. Do you understand what I... If I was in the mountains of Tennessee, we'd be pitching babies, jumping pews. You understand what I'm saying? Because somebody just got a word. Listen, it wasn't just enough to tar it and seal it to keep it from sinking. She prayer pitched it. She pitched prayered it. She put the prayer of pitch on it and the pitch of prayer. And she said, Father, I've got a word from you. And you said, this boy here is going to live and surely not die. What mama in her right mind that's put her life on the line would put a baby in a crocodile infested Nile and put him in a basket to float? She had to have a word from God. She had to have a word from God. And I'm telling you, church, listen to me. Oftentimes, the word we get from God makes no financial, logical sense at the moment. I believe in my sanctified imagination, it's my sermon, so I get to preach it the way I want. I believe, Dr. Kelly, that 
for the last several weeks, Daddy Amram and Mama Jochebed got a word from God, and they called Aaron, they called Miriam. Miriam's the oldest, I think. They called him in, and they said, listen, we got a word from God. And there's something unique about this boy. Mama's going to build a basket, and she's going to put it in the, in the Nile. And the Nile's swelling up. It's fertility time. Boy, you know Miriam and, and Aaron are just, lips are quivering, and their eyes are misting. And they said, boy, don't put him in the, don't put him in the Nile. Mama, we'll hide him. We'll take care of him. Daddy Amram said, now, wait a minute. Now, Miriam, look at me, baby. Look at me. We got a word from God. Now, Miriam, we're going to put him in that basket tomorrow. It's done. Mama's tarred it. She's prayer pitched it. And we're going to lay him in that basket. The Lord said tomorrow. And by the way, when I was down at the brick pits, I got a word that Pharaoh's daughter, whose name was Thermusa. Look it up historically. Don't take my word for it. Thermusa. She must have been a looker. <laughs> Thermusa. <laughs> Told you all babies weren't. Anyway, so. Here's an interesting thing, Doc. Thermusa, historically, we're told by Josephus and multiple other Hebrew scholars, along with Egyptian history that I was reading while I was over there, Thermusa was known for her infertility. Proverbs 13, verse 17 says, there are seven things that will never know any satisfaction, and one is the womb of a woman that doesn't have a child. You want a baby. Amen. You can't wait. <laughs> she goes down to that Nile. It's beginning to swell. Her daddy has had the Hebrew boys tossed in it to appease, not only politically, but but demonically to appease the god Hepti flowing out of the north. It's bumping out of its banks. And here's an oddity. When you get to the text, what is, what is, what is, what is, what is Pharaoh's daughter doing taking a bath in a crocodile nasty Nile? What, what is she? She lives in opulence. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I don't have time to explain it and don't have the vocabulary to, to, to illustrate it. You can't imagine what these people were doing in Egypt back 3,000 years ago. They had endless hot water. I don't have endless hot water, mostly because I have children that still live with me. <laughs> she had people that would bathe her, towel her, poof her hair. She, she could go from a cool bath to a hot bath that was all marble lined. We still don't know. The, the, the hydro, geo, we still don't know how they did it. They had endless hot water in the house. What is she doing in the Nile? She's not taking a bath. She's washing ceremonially. She's standing in the Nile, and this is what she's doing. She is begging the Hepti God of the Nile to open her womb. And at that very moment, the only God that can open any womb, who opened the womb of a virgin and sent the Son of God to become what we are, that we might become who he is. She, she set that basket down in that water and one more time prayed over it. And I believe that the Holy Ghost of God with the Ruach of God, the wind of God came and sat down on that basket. And I, listen, I can't prove it did happen, but you can't prove it didn't happen. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out who's right. I think the Ruach of God, the, the very Spirit of God sent a wind and blew that basket in opposite direction of the flow of the Nile and pushed that basket right into the bosom 
of the very woman who was the daughter of the man that wanted that kid dead. She's down there begging for a child. Pops that top up off of that thing and says, Well, where did you come from? Now, 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 now stay with me. Don't go anywhere. Watch this. I struggled for a while with the fact that the text indicates that Miriam is just boom right there. She's about seven or eight years old at the most. Now, I think what happened was in their private praise and prayer time, in their family altar time, I think mom and dad had been telling Miriam, Miriam, God's given us a day, he's given us a date, and he's given us a word. We're going to put that basket when it begins to swell, showing its greatest fertility. We've already heard that Thermusa's coming down, and she's going to wash in order to open up her womb because she has no children. And we listen, that's the day that God told us to do it. So Miriam, look at me, honey, look at me, look at me. This is what I want you to do. We're going to practice. You're going to be down on the banks of the Nile. And when you're standing there, what I want you to do is just watch. As mom drops him downstream, we believe... He's going to float upstream back into the bosom of the very woman who belongs to the man that wants to kill your little brother. You watch. And this is what you're going to do. When you see that basket roll up into her, her audience, this is what we want you to do. We want you to just step out and go, <clears throat> hello. Practice it with me. Come on, practice it with me. <clears throat> hello. So this is what's going on. Pastor, can I borrow this? Can I borrow this? This is what's going on right here. Watch this. She's hiding behind the bushes. She's hiding right behind the bushes. She's watching the basket. All the pomp, all the circumstance, all the palatial, all, 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 all the military guards coming down. There's the most powerful woman in the world. And, and, and Miriam's going, okay, practice my lines, practice my lines, practice my lines. i got to practice my lines. And she watches that basket float and she goes. That basket rolls right up on that shore and she goes, excuse me. I, I, I know somebody that could take care of that child. She'd been practicing it for days. My wife says this is her favorite portion of the book of Exodus because God now is going to take the woman who believed him and bore the son and pay her her salary to raise the son that she bore. <laughs> and all the women said, Amen. You know, my first thought is, my first thought was in reading this generically in, in an American context was, you know, Pharaoh's daughter saw Miriam standing there. But I'm going to tell you something, ladies. You, you have a discernment. I mean, lost or saved, dude. You know she knows. We're going to have to preach online right here. Hello, gentlemen. You know she knows. Amen. When you walk in and she says, what have you been doing? She doesn't even know what it was, but she knows. And you know she knows. When you get to the text, you know in your spirit that this highly educated lady, this, this daughter of Pharaoh, You mean to tell me that this little Hebrew girl just showed up out of nowhere? No, no. Yo, you you know somebody who can nurse this baby? Really? Oh, isn't that convenient? At that moment, Thormusa picks the child up out of the basket and sends him home with his sister 
to pay his mother so that she can begin to educate him as what history records the third most powerful member of Pharaoh's court. Now we're done right here. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I want you to do me a favor. If you got your copy of God's word, I know I've preached too long, but I, 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 let me close right here. First, first Chronicles, go to First Chronicles. It's that book you read for great inspiration and revival. <laughs> first Chronicles chapter 4. And as you find First Chronicles chapter 4, I want to tell you what you're looking at is a census. It'd be like the United States government's taking a census of all of America. This is a census of who came out of Egypt. This is, they're lining it up. Look at First Corinthians, First Chronicles, my, my apologies, First Chronicles 4. And I want you to, if you would, to look at, at verse 17. I want to show you the whole point and purpose of all that's going on here. First Chronicles chapter 4. If you're at verse 17, say amen. amen. And the sons of Ezra were Jether, Merid, Ephor, and Jalon. And these are the sons of Bethia, the daughter of Pharaoh. Oh, I forgot to mention. History records that Thermusa had a name change. Thermusa is known all over Egyptian history and Hebrew history as Bathia, the daughter of Jehovah. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Wait a minute. It gets better. Bathia, the daughter of Pharaoh, and she bare, verse 17, Jalon, and she bare Miriam, drop down to verse 18, and his wife, Je- uh, hard word, and Jared, the father of Gedor and Hebor, and the father of Soko. And the father of Jenoth, and these are the sons of Bathia, the daughter of Pharaoh, which Mered took. Almost without exception, nowhere in the word of God do you ever find, this is one of the only two exceptions that you'll find, where the word of God records the firstborn daughter instead of the firstborn son. And she named her Miriam. This is the daughter of Pharaoh, Thormusa. You know what happened to her? One day, somehow, some way, by God's providential grace, the very one she thought she was saving became the one that showed her how to get saved. What she thought was meeting a need physically, she took home, and over the years, it met the greatest need spiritually. And Bathia... Thermusa of old has a little baby girl. <laughs> what are we going to name her? Oh, honey, I'll tell you what we're going to name her. I will never forget the day when I saw that little trembling Hebrew girl standing on the banks of the Nile with her eyes to the ground rehearsing her lines. I remember Miriam. And I remember the courage she had. And that day I had to make a decision whether to dump that basket in the Nile and appease my father and the God of the Nile or I had, I had the opportunity to look in the eyes of that little courageous girl and say, there's something going on here. And the one I thought I was saving became the one that introduced me to the Savior. Listen to me, beloved. Only eternity is going to be able to tell what this great church has done to touch eternity. Right now, the hour's late. The days are dark. The crosshairs of political correctness are on us.
And I have told my son, who's studying for the ministry, in all probability, if Jesus tarries, there is a high probability that he will see his dad fined into oblivion, if not incarcerated, because I am not compromising the book. Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. Not compromising. And if he stays in the ministry and he stays the course, he's going to pay an incredible price. That's the land we're living. That's the prophetic trajectory we're on right now. But I'm telling you, listen to me. There's a day coming. When you think that in the midst of this cesspool of carnality and this culture of death and this political correctness, what, what difference is a church like this going to make in such a cesspool? You hear me? There are thermosas all over this town. There are men and women all over this place bathing themselves in the hope of some demonic uh, rabbit's foot, hoping to get something to fill the void that's in their heart. And I'm telling you, you're somebody's Miriam tonight. You are somebody's Jochebed. You are somebody's Amram. You are a church that has a light and you are salt and God has put you here for such a time as this. Don't you let Pharaoh tell you what you can and cannot do. Don't you let the swelling banks of the Nile and political correctness tell you that God's word is or is not viable and, and voracious. I'm telling you in the name of Jesus, that name still works and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, there are thamusas all over this town that are waiting for you just to rehearse the lines from your heavenly father and say, I know somebody. I know somebody. And in that moment, it so etched a mark in Thamusa's heart that when she gave her firstborn, even the Holy Ghost (laughs) said, put it down first. And name her Miriam. Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you for your presence. I thank you for this patient and kind people. I thank you, O oh God, for the blessed hope of the gospel and the fact that, Lord, there is no weapon formed against us that will prosper. This church's greatest days are yet to be seen. Because as the darker it grows out there, the greater the light of the gospel is going to pierce the darkness. So in the name of Jesus, this is my prayer tonight. That those who, Father, have walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and signed a card and maybe even went through some perfunctory activity called baptism, but they've never experienced the intimacy of knowing you personally. Oh, their name's on the roll. And they are probably even a member of good standing to be here on a Monday night. But the truth of the matter is, the fear of death still lurks in the recesses of their heart. And they don't have the blessed sacred hope that Thermusa, who became Bithynia, would have because they've never met the one who can save them from the chilly waters of death. So in Jesus' name I pray tonight, fear would melt, faith would rise, and tonight they'd come and take pastor's hand and say, I want to know that I know that I know. And for those that remain that do know, I pray, oh God, that they would not falter. I pray, God, they'd not look back, but putting their hands to the plow and their eyes to the skies, that they would commit tonight, I'm going to be somebody's Miriam. I'm going to be somebody's Aaron. I'm going to be Daddy Jacob, Mama Jacobet. I'm going to be Daddy Amram. I'm going to stand in a culture that's killing the unborn and railing on the name of Jesus. And I'm going to wait to watch what God does. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Andrew's going to begin to lead us in just a moment. Pastor's going to be waiting. Now, coming down here won't save you, beloved, but I'm telling you the one pastor can introduce you to will save you to the uttermost. If tonight you don't know that you know and 
You prayed tonight and said, Father, I want to know. Nobody's looking. I don't even know you, beloved. Would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor, pray for me. Because tonight, I just got to get this thing settled called salvation. I want to know that I know that Jesus is my Lord. Will you just wave at me? I just want to pray for you right where you are. God bless you, young man. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you, ma'am, for your honesty. God bless you. Anybody else in this room? Nobody's looking. Nobody's calling or coming. For those of you that remain, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus, stand on the banks of that Nile tonight and ask God to show you one more time how he's going to use you for his glory. In the name of Jesus.